1: Throughout this series, you've been hearing conversations recorded by Janet Malcolm for the book she wrote about Joe McGinnis and Jeffrey MacDonald, The Journalists and the Murderer. In this episode, you'll hear dramatic recreations from that book, condensed for clarity.
2: I learned of the case only after the trial had ended, when I received a letter dated September 1, 1987. The letter, from a certain Daniel Kornstein, began...
3: I am the lawyer who defended Joe McGuinness, author of Fatal Vision, in a six-week jury trial
1: in Los Angeles. Convicted murderer Jeffrey McDonald had sued Joe McGinnis over his book Fatal Vision. That trial ended with a hung jury. A new trial was coming, so Joe had his lawyer send a letter to journalists, hoping they'd write about the case. The
3: McDonald claim suggests that reporters can be sued for writing truthful but unflattering articles.
2: Kornstein went on to speak of the grave threat to established journalistic freedoms.
3: Joe McGuinness and I both feel that the danger is sufficiently clear and present as to warrant your close attention and concern.
2: I took Kornstein's bait, and a few days later I was driving up to Williamstown, Massachusetts to talk to Joe McGuinness at his house there.
4: You. That's that's part of your This little, little house, house back too? here is yeah,
5: mm-hmm. carriage house. And you have a friend who's a painter who uses it as a studio.
1: Out of the 30 journalists who got Joe's letter, Janet Malcolm was the only one who responded.
5: What this guy is doing here, what he threatens, if this if this gets anywhere, all of a sudden we're gonna wake up one day and see we don't have what we always had, the freedom to write the truth we somehow surrendered that, unbeknownst to us, because of this peculiar uh, case out there in California.
0: Hi. 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 I lunch before I back
1: lunch? Joe's wife, Nancy Doherty, is there, too.
4: And <laughs> a delicious sandwich of that wonderful bread and cheese. Oh. Toasted in your what? toast
1: bowl. Oh. Roles had reversed for Joe in the saga of Fatal Vision. There was a new journalist in town. And now Joe was her subject.
5: Crazy. Last night I had a dream. So We're retrial, right now. I said, wait, I'm not ready for this. I just, I'm not ready yet. This can't be happening yet. I was actually back in the courthouse. He said, no, no, this is much too soon. I haven't recovered yet. I'm not ready.
4: That was your dream?
1: Last night,
5: yeah. My amateur analysis of my own dream was that uh, it's probably in regards to talking to you today. This, this was the new trial.
1: In studying Joe's betrayal of Jeffrey McDonald, Janet Malcolm would find her thesis for the journalist and the murder. How journalists betray their subjects is morally indefensible. And listening to these tapes Janet recorded reveals her own form of betrayal of Joe McGinnis. Did Joe trust Janet Malcolm when she started talking to
0: him? I mean, you know, she had a great reputation, so he didn't really know any better. But um, he kind of realized as soon as she walked in the door that this was not a good idea.
6: viewers watch the two-part series of fatal vision here on NBC 60 million on Sunday alone
0: guilty or not guilty of murder in the first degree
6: guilty. Joe McGinnis did he hurt you with regard to appeals
3: they replay that miniseries every time I go to court
6: I and I mean, of all the suits one could imagine a suit by a murderer hard to believe so you were keeping things from him always the integrity of his life is that he's a murderer. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a fact.
1: That's, yes. that's a fact. the truth. And the fact that I told an untruth to get the truth wouldn't have kept me awake. And he
0: made promises, but
3: they were all just
1: lies. And he broke promises, bring me tears to their eyes. I'm Mark Smirling. Chapter 7, Morally Indefensible. Why was Janet the only journalist to show up to write about the lawsuit between Jeffrey McDonald and Joe McGuinness? Maybe it's because she had been sued, too, by the subject of one of her previous books,
6: a psychoanalyst named Jeffrey Mason. The New Yorker came knocking at your door. The New Yorker. The New Yorker did, And yes. Janet Malcolm, one of its most illustrious journalists, interviewed you. She did. Uh, it was published, and afterwards you sued her. You said that she misquoted you? Yes. How did that feel, though, picking up a copy of The New Yorker, but it was flicking shock. through it and you. saying I mean yourself... I can
1: remember to this day, flipping it through it, and, you know, I, I felt dizzy. I, I felt... But I never said anything like this. And I think she did it because it sounded more entertaining, more fun, and my feeling was that she showed me in a light worse than I really was. On Joe's porch in Williamstown, Massachusetts, two journalists commiserate over being sued.
4: I mean, there was something about emotional distress in Mason's claim, too. I mean, he talked about how he had night, he couldn't sleep at night after my piece. And oh,
1: yeah.
4: I was very unhappy. and... Suffered so, same symptoms that
5: McDonald has suffered. Yes, yeah, sleepless nights, weight loss, anxiety. Yeah.
4: Weight loss would be great for Mason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was always dying. And because Janet
1: had been sued, Joe seems comfortable talking to her.
5: You know, you're in a unique position because you're not only a writer, but you're also a recent defendant. Would you have been interested in this if you hadn't just been sued?
4: I think so. I mean, I'm interested in just what somebody feels like when this happens to them because of remembering my own feelings, and Mm -hmm. we'll get into that. Um,
1: Janet doesn't want to talk about her experience getting sued by her subject. But she is very interested in Joe's relationship with Jeff. In The Journalist and the Murderer, Janet writes that she recognized this talk as a unique opportunity.
2: I had never interviewed a journalist before and was curious about what would develop between me and a journalistically knowledgeable rather than naive subject.
1: In her book, Janet has high hopes for this interview.
2: McGinnis and I would be less like experimenter and subject than like two experimenters strolling home from the lab together after a day's work, companionably thrashing out the problems of the profession.
1: And in the beginning, Janet and Joe seemed to have a lot in common.
4: Well, my experience is probably much like yours. While this stage of things is going on, you're taking it in, staying as open as possible, and here you are with another human being.
1: Right. Um, They both recognize that journalists have to befriend their subjects to get the truth. And writing that truth often requires a betrayal.
4: And only when you start writing it, does that kind of more um, inhuman part of it take place. That's right. That's right.
5: And subjects are constantly feeling betrayed because they don't
1: understand that there has to be that distinction between the two modes. And right now, this journalist and her subject are in the befriending stage of their relationship.
2: Nobody would do anything to anyone. The conversation would be serious, on a high level, maybe even lively and witty.
5: MacDonald just wants to control me. He wants to interfere with my life. It
2: did not work out that way. McGuinness refused the role of co-experimenter, preferring to play the role of subject.
5: I'm embarrassed that somebody who's supposed to be as good and what he does, as I am, could have been so badly fooled by this guy.
2: After the first hour of the five hours we spent together, I gave in to McGinnis' imperative that we play the old game of confession.
1: I didn't know what the hell to like, yeah. And he's writing me these letters. So. Yeah. This is what like Joe McGinnis listened to Jeffrey McDonald, Janet Malcolm listens to Joe, not revealing what she really feels. In her book, she writes that Joe, of all people, should have known better.
2: Of course, no subject is naive. Every subject of writing knows on some level what is in store for him and remains in the relationship anyway, impelled by something stronger than his reason. That McGuinness, who had interviewed hundreds of people and knew the game backward and forward, should nevertheless exhibit himself to me as a defensive, self-righteous, scared man only demonstrates the strength of this force.
1: After Janet Malcolm was finished with Joe McGuinness, she flew to California to interview Jeffrey McDonald.
3: If Joe hadn't misportrayed how he was going to portray me in the book, if he hadn't taken money, if he hadn't lived in my home, if he hadn't misled me for four years, we don't have a case. But as it was, he breached the contract and he committed fraud, so we sued him for those two things.
1: Jeff's here to convince Janet Malcolm that fatal vision is filled with lies.
3: And you just leave through it and you just shake your head. How can someone misportray whether or not I had a residency in orthopedic surgery at Yale University? I'm talking about outright falsehoods. I mean, that is preposterous. He has in the book unqualified, unqualified, he was not offered the residency in orthopedic surgery at Yale.
1: But Janet's time is limited, and Jeff wants to spend a lot of it on this Yale thing.
4: Uh, You know, we all make mistakes.
3: Right. Yes, you're right. That's more in terms of mistake, but his-
1: In the tapes we have, Janet doesn't seem interested in Jeff's residency at Yale. She doesn't ask much about the evidence that led a jury to convict Jeff either. She's more interested in the story of Joe's betrayal. What
4: did it feel
3: like to be in the same room with McGinnis? Uh I don't know, I sort of put up a wall, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was very cool intentionally. I didn't want to look at him. I didn't want to study him. Did
4: did you ever look at him? Oh, yeah, I looked at him occasionally,
3: yeah. Yeah, there was eye contact. Um, It was funny because he's so transparent. When he lies, it's so obvious.
4: Well, that's possible, isn't it, for somebody to
3: uh, sort of put on a kind of performance? But then, that's what I'm saying. Everything
1: about Joe is a performance. Mm -hmm. And that performance was most obvious in the encouraging letters Joe wrote to Jeff in prison.
6: Total strangers can see within five minutes that you did not receive a fair trial. What the fuck were those people thinking of? Spend a summer making a new friend and then the bastards come along and lock him up. But not for long, Jeffrey. Not for long.
4: Well, he had a very poor uh, case. I mean, it was very hard for him to do anything about those letters. I mean, not really... Right. Um, right. What can you say?
3: Um, exactly.
4: Exactly. Uh, It it sort of speaks
1: for itself. Back on Joe's porch in Williamstown, Janet asked Joe about those letters.
5: Look, those letters are embarrassing. I wish I'd never written those letters. I suppose now I can say that I wish I'd never written them because I'm embarrassed at how genuine the feeling in those letters is.
4: Yeah, and things written, they take on a different life then, and they seem... Absolutely. Well, that must have been terrible yeah. for you to see your own sort of just easily
5: written letters. Then. Sure. Well, five years later, you know, six years later, you know, one of those paragraphs is being viewed by these six strangers in California, and they're saying, well, does that indicate that McGinnis was trying to
1: deceive McDonald?" It's horrible. Janet sounds sympathetic to Joe here. Like Joe sounded sympathetic in all the letters he sent to Jeff in prison. In her notes about this interview, Janet reveals her real thoughts.
2: McGinnis' letters are a horrendous example caught in the act. How deeply awful and embarrassing. He left a record of the crime every writer commits, but leaves no written record of, the betrayal of the subject.
1: Back at Terminal Island, Jeff wants the world to know about this betrayal.
3: I think, generally speaking, the media is not about to run out and talk badly about brother journalists. Journalists have not been eager to discuss false reporting by Joe McGinnis. Pardon me, please, but I really find journalists very cowardly.
1: Jeff needs a journalist who's not a coward, who sees Joe for the villain he really is.
4: I think we just started
3: talking. I know. Oh, I know. But I if you want to come back, you know, because there is a lot. I mean, if you want to. I would
4: very much like to. I uh, have to go back to New York on Saturday.
1: Janet says she'll write, Jeff. She'll keep in touch. And as for Joe McGinnis, that interview ended very differently.
5: How can you write about living people without getting up close to them and knowing who they are?
1: Joe was still hopeful that Janet would understand.
5: How do you get up close to them and know who they are without developing some sort of personal relationship at the same time that you have your professional relationship? I mean, where did my relationship with McDonald go beyond that of author and
4: subject? But look, do you have any doubt about this yourself? I mean, you're, I mean, you're sort of putting this as kind of rhetorical questions. I mean, do you, are you completely convinced in your own mind or, or, or not? What, what are you saying here?
5: Convinced about what?
4: That you wouldn't change it in any way, well, that this is
5: a... Uh, I can't think of any way I would change this. You know. All I was was being me yeah. and and doing my reporting thing.
4: Yeah.
5: Uh, there's no other way I would know how to do it.
4: Yeah. Do you want to open the window? Uh, yeah, yeah maybe. the scale stuffy. here.
2: At six o'clock, the tape recorder clicked. And though McGinnis sat waiting for me to put in a new tape, I decided to bring the interview to an end. When two days later he called to cancel our future interviews and to say, I want to put all this behind me, I was not surprised and rather relieved.
1: Later, when she sat down to write The Journalist and the Murderer, Janet no longer had to hide her true feelings about Joe McGinnis.
2: By banishing me, he had freed me from the guilt I would otherwise have felt. You can't betray someone you barely know. You can only irritate and anger him and make him wish he had never made himself known to you.
6: Have you noticed how many JMs there are in this case? There's Janet Malcolm, uh, there's Jeffrey McDonald. This is Bob Keeler from Newsday. He'd been covering the McDonald case almost from the beginning. There's Joe McGuinness. There's the psychiatrist Jeffrey Masson. So what's up with that? So he
1: also got a visit from Janet Malcolm. Here's how Janet described that meeting in her book.
2: On an overcast day, I drove out on Long Island to see Bob Keeler in his office at Newsday. He is a fast-talking man in his mid-40s with slightly receding hair and a slightly soft outline who has an air of bracing directness and unpretentiousness.
6: I refer to her as a Manhattan Winesy Cheesy Lady. She came out, it was a Wednesday. She brought sandwiches, I remember. She sat there very uh, placidly, I recall, waiting for the questions to descend upon her from the sky. And she would put it, she would describe it as her Japanese interview technique. I didn't study journalism in Japan, so I didn't figure that technique out. She said to me something like, she feels that she could uh, For New Yorker story, she could distill the essence of a person. I said, just do me a favor, don't distill the essence. I'm speaking pretty okay English sentences. Just quote me as I am. Mm -hmm. Janet Malcolm had this theory that people will say anything to any any reporter. They want to tell their story. And every journalist is out to screw you, uh, is out to fool you. That's why I think that her whole argument is bullshit. It's not true if you're a daily newspaper journalist or if you're a TV journalist or a radio journalist, where people are seeing your work product on a daily basis as opposed to you sneaking up on them with a book that they only see it at the end, you have to be fair to people.
2: As I was saying goodbye, Keeler, with his irrepressible desire to be helpful, thrust upon me a large blue loose leaf book containing the transcripts of his interviews with McDonald, McGinnis, and others.
6: I think I gave her a binder, a loosely binder I had with a lot of documents in it, transcripts of my interviews with Joe um, and my interviews with Jeffrey. So I thought to be helpful to her, I would let her borrow it.
2: When I got home, I leafed through the book and put it aside. An interview, after all, is only as good as the journalist who conducts it. And I felt, to put it bluntly, that Keeler would not get from his subjects the kind of authentic responses that I try to elicit from mine with a more Japanese technique.
6: To be honest, I don't remember whether she ever gave it back, but I was trying to be helpful.
2: When I finally read Keeler's transcripts, however, I was in for a surprise and an illumination. McDonald and McGinnis had said exactly the same things to the unsubtle Keeler as they had said to me.
1: When Bob finally read The Journalist and the Murderer, he felt like another betrayed subject.
2: I was kind of ticked, but
6: I was ticked because of stupid stuff. You know, we all have levels of vanity, and uh, I would have to acknowledge that I was balding and had a soft outline. Certainly true. Why she had to say it is a whole nother story.
2: Dear Jeff, one of the lessons of your lawsuit, it seems to me, is that a writer cannot be as friendly as McGinnis was with you, and still retain his freedom to be as unfriendly toward his subject in print as he pleases.
7: Dear Janet, the question seriously misses the issue. It is not friendly versus unfriendly. What the lawsuit was involved with was lying.
2: But wouldn't you agree that it was only in the matrix of a friendship that such a misrepresentation could have been made and accepted by you.
7: McGinnis cleverly disguised the truth, rejected easily available and checkable facts, and created his own artistic version.
2: I think I have most of the material I need. If there are things about yourself that have not come up in our talks or letters that you think belong to our interview, please write to me about them.
7: Meditation. I believe it's meditation which has helped me focus on what is important, and not be consumed with anger or rage because of the loss of my family, followed by the false conviction.
2: Dear Jeff, you mentioned forgiveness as a quality that meditation strengthens. Can you see yourself forgiving McGinnis?
1: As far as I can tell, Jeff never answered that question. What did you hear that they were going to settle?
0: Well, the trial had gone on for seven weeks, and the insurance company was not willing to go back again. They'd already spent $850,000. It was like, how, another trial, you know, it felt like anything could happen.
1: Rather than go through another trial, Joe McGinnis decided to settle with Jeffrey McDonald. He paid him $325,000.
0: And then, of course, Janet Malcolm trashed our lives further. So uh, let's talk about it later.
1: In March of 1989, the first of a two-part article appeared in The New Yorker.
2: Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse.
1: The articles became her book. And Joe became the poster boy for what not to do as a journalist.
0: It was a devastating critique that clung to McGinnis. It takes
3: a moral question that might not have occurred to you. Do you have moral obligation to
0: a murderer? And the interesting thing is, yeah. Is what Joe McGinnis did morally indefensible? He befriended Jeffrey McDonald. You know, I think
1: if a reporter is gratuitously cruel to someone, lies to someone in order to get information. I agree, that is morally indefensible, but that's not what most reporters do. Toward the end of his life, Joe would write an unpublished memoir. Thanks to Nancy Doherty, we have an excerpt read here by an actor.
6: Malcolm carved me up like a turkey. Almost overnight, I became not only a carved turkey, but a cooked goose. Nothing I'd written in the five books I'd published to that point mattered. She turned me into a journalistic leper, and what she wrote about me 25 years ago haunts me even today. The worst of it was that I had only myself to blame.
1: Throughout his life, Joe would be asked about Janet's book over and over oh, again. That brings people. me
7: to the Janet Malcolm business, and it must have been a terrible time for you to have
3: yourself taken over the coals like that.
5: I was angry because uh, I think she had it completely 180 degrees wrong, and I do believe she had it completely wrong that the relationship between me and McDonald, she completely willfully misunderstood. And that her argument was that you got too close
0: to him, and that you took it. He never really got over that that somehow he would be pilloried for doing what he thought was good, hard, journalistic work. He wasn't treated um, in the same way by his peers, and he didn't get books to review anymore. And He felt that he'd lost respect. It's too late now to do anything about it, but... It's, in a way, it, it's a tragedy. Yeah, On a small scale, it's not like murder, but... It's the murder of a reputation.
1: Joe suffered greatly from Janet's book, all because he misled a convicted triple murderer. Is what Joe did morally indefensible? I'm not so sure. And I'm not alone. Let me ask you, if you were in a conversation with somebody like Jeffrey, discovering new stuff along the way, would you be completely
6: honest with him? I don't know if I would have had it in me to just lie to him outright. You know, I don't I don't know that I could have done that. This is Bob Keeler from Newsday
1: again. Which is what Joe did.
6: Yeah, I think Joe kind of did, you know. Joe, maybe he did it artfully. Maybe he said, you know, keep those tapes coming, Jeffrey. You know, it's, it's really, the book is really coming along. You could say that Joe was really untruthful with him in the sense that he was pulling stuff out of him. But whether he actually told him an out-and-out lie saying, oh, Jeffrey, I think you're innocent. You know, I don't know how much of that he did. It's true. We could never
1: find a letter from Joe to Jeff in which Joe clearly says that Jeff is innocent. And in all those tapes Jeff made for Joe, Jeff never asked. I wanted to ask Janet Malcolm about all this, but she declined to be interviewed. Her book became a staple in journalism schools across the country. And the debate it sparked would go on for years in college campuses, and in newsrooms. And there was somebody sitting in a federal prison who probably enjoyed the book more than anyone else. Dear Janet, I personally believe you let McGinnis off a bit easy.
7: (laughs) The opening was great. Even I was startled. Started laughing when I read it. You were brave, all in all. You should feel pretty good. Best regards, Jeff.
2: Dear Jeff, I was happy to hear from you. Thank you for your encouraging words about the Mason trial.
1: Remember how Janet was getting sued by a psychoanalyst named Jeffrey Mason? She hired Gary Bostwick, Jeff's lawyer. And ultimately, she won.
2: I was very surprised to learn that you could be out on parole and have chosen to remain in prison to establish your innocence. This seems unprecedented and should be better known. It has made a great impression on me. All my best, Janet.
1: This Thursday, the final chapter. It's 2012, and Jeff lawyers get him a new hearing to prove his innocence once and for all.
2: This guy may be getting out of jail, folks.
1: But not if Joe McGuinness has anything to do with it. The journalist and the murderer get their final showdown. <laughs> Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Zach Hirsch and Julia Batero, With help from Danielle Elliott, Ryan Swikert, Kevin Shepard, and Jesse Rudoy. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brendan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound design by Kenny Kusiak and Zach Hirsch. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by the Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Jesse Rudoy, Nick Dietz, and marie Lindsay Sperling. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twig, Mae Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmull, Diana Decilio Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavage, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Instagram and Facebook at Morally Indefensible and Twitter at Morally M-O-R-A-L-L-Y-I-N-D-E-F. If you've enjoyed Morally Indefensible, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.